0: Right, we'll get going now. Thank you very much for joining uh, joining us this morning. This is the last of our... um mental wellness series that we've been hosting from the Department of Experimental Psychology here at the University of Oxford. Uh, my name is Cathy Creswell and I'm based here in the Department of Experimental Psychology um, and I've been really enjoying presenting this series. Um, if you haven't joined us before, please do have a look at our YouTube channel for the Department of Experimental Psychology where you'll find all of the previous talks in this series. Um, they include a really broad range of topics including coping with trauma, um, eating disorders, depression and low mood, sleep problems, stress and anxiety, grief, a range of other topics that we hope will be helpful for you and people that you may know. Um, And just a few other things, bits of housekeeping to say. Um, The session will run till 10.45. Uh, We encourage you to take a break after the session. Sometimes the sessions do raise lots of sort of thoughts and and feelings for people. So please do take a break, reach out to people should you need to. We'll also ask you to complete some feedback at the end. So we'd be really grateful. If you could do that. And also, as you'll have seen, we're recording this session so that it will also be shared on our YouTube channel, and it's, we're also live on YouTube as well. Um, We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Hannah Murray, who is a research clinical psychologist in the Oxford Centre for Anxiety Disorders and Trauma here in the Department of Experimental Psychology in Oxford. And Hannah has particular expertise in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, and will be talking to us today about understanding and managing troubling Mental images. Um, I'll be handing over to Hannah shortly, but just to let you know that um, after Hannah's presentation, we'll have time for some questions that people have submitted in advance. But as this is our last session, we also are going to open up the chat so that people are able to ask questions in there too. So please do put anything that you would like to ask Hannah in the chat as she's speaking or afterwards and we'll try to get through as many of your questions as we can. But without further ado, I'm delighted now to hand over to Hannah Murray. Thanks, Hannah.
1: Thanks, Cathy. And thank you all for joining. I'm just going to share my slides. Hopefully you can all see that. So good morning and uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Um, and as Kathy says, I'm going to talk about um, mental imagery and particularly sort of troubling mental images that people might have, which I think is a topic that kind of cuts across uh, a lot of different psychological disorders, as I'll talk about, but also things that can affect all of us from time to time. So um, a little bit about what I want to cover. First of all, I'll talk briefly about why mental images are important. Um, mental images in psychological disorders, and therefore also in their treatment. And then I'll talk a bit about how we can transform mental images, both clinically and for ourselves. So I hope that sounds all right. So first of all, why are mental images important? Well, let's try a little test of this. Which of these makes you hungrier? The word cake or me saying cake or an image of a cake? about this, what makes you more anxious, the word height or an image of a high place? It's probably the latter because usually images have much more of a kind of powerful connection to our emotional responses than words do on their own. And this is something that's been demonstrated experimentally. It's really a lovely study by Emily Holmes and, and colleagues where they gave people a word and an image and asked them to combine them either in uh, an image in their mind or in a sentence. And the words were either positive or negative. So for example, the word "sink" with a picture of someone um, swimming in a lake or a positive word or a neutral word, benign word like swim and a picture of someone in the lake. And you combine those either in an in a image, a picture in your own mind or in a sentence. And what they found was when their participants combine them into an image, had a much more powerful impact on their anxiety. They felt much more anxious with those negative words. Um, And similarly with with the benign words, it had a much more powerful impact in terms of reducing their anxiety. So we think that images have a really powerful connection to our emotions and probably one that's more powerful than words. And when we think about what's happening in our brains when we imagine something, it's actually very similar to when we perceive it in real life. Um, You won't have time to look at these scans in in lots of detail, but this was from an fMRI study where they asked people to um, imagine an object and then they showed them pictures of the same object. And if you look at the sort of um, subtraction of those, those images for the different parts of the brain, you can see that almost exactly the same parts of the brain light up when we imagine something as to when we directly perceive it. And probably our imagination is a sort of subset of the same processes that happen um, in our brain um, than when we actually perceive something in real life. And we can also demonstrate this ourselves. So um, we can do a little exercise for a moment. Um, If you feel comfortable to just close your eyes for me, And I want you to imagine that you're getting home from work at the end of the day and you're walking in your front door of your home. So just imagine opening the door, pushing it open, stepping inside and what you could see around you as you enter your home, what you can smell, maybe any sounds that you can hear. Try and bring that into your mind's eye and your mind's ear. Maybe take off your shoes and feel what the floor feels like under your feet. And then I want you to imagine walking to your kitchen. And again, pause there, have a look around, what you can see, what you can smell, what the temperature's like. And walk over to your fridge. And I want you to open your fridge and notice the change in temperature and take out a lemon and then carry that lemon over to uh, a chopping board, pick up a knife and cut it into four segments. And then I want you to imagine picking up one of those segments of lemon and just notice how it feels in your fingers, waxy surface, what the flesh looks like, Inhale it, have a little smell. What does that smell like? And then I want you to imagine taking a bite into that lemon segment. Okay, so you can open your eyes. I imagine for some of you, that exercise would have been quite easy. You would have been able to generate a kind of quite powerful mental image. For others, it might be a little bit harder. And that's just because there's a sort of natural variation in the population in terms of how readily we can um, generate powerful mental images. But for those of you who were able to get um, a strong mental image, you might have noticed that when you bit into the lemon, you've got some sort of physical impact of that. You know, your mouth might have even started to water a little bit, or you might have felt a bit of that kind of impact of the sourness of the lemon. And that's because, as I said earlier, our, our brain is sort of responding to mental imagery in much of the same way that it does to things that we're directly um, perceiving in real life. And that's why it can be so powerful. It can affect our sort of physiological state, like making a, the saliva come into your mouth. And it can also affect our behavior. And, you know, I've talked mainly so far about sort of visual imagery, but imagery, of course, is multi-sensory. And the same thing would happen if we did something that tapped into auditory imagery. So, for example, if I played you a song, um, a familiar song to you, and then I asked you to play that song back in your head um, again and listen to it with your, with your mind's ear, as it were, you would be able to kind of hear that song almost as... Powerfully as you you can hear it when I play it to you in real life. And the same bits of your brain would light up. And you might even notice yourself doing things like taking an intake of breath as if you're going to sing something, even though you're only playing it in imagination. So that your your mind is kind of giving you the same cues to behave as it does when you see something in real life. And of course, this is harnessed in lots of positive ways. So for example, in sports psychology, the power of visualisation, Um, is is recognised, that when we are going to um, compete in a major event we often often rehearse over and over again it going well and how all of that might run. Um, And that um, kind of has a powerful impact on our our behaviour and can improve our performance. Okay, so hopefully I'll convince you that mental imagery is important and that it's powerful and that it can affect both our body and our behaviour. So let's talk about it a little bit in psychological disorders. So I work primarily with post-traumatic stress disorder, as Kathy said, and mental imagery obviously plays a huge role in this disorder. You know, people have um, a lot of re-experiencing symptoms from traumas that they've suffered that come into their mind really powerfully in flashbacks and images. They might have nightmares. And a lot of those images will be memories, but some of them will also be images that have sort of changed over time. So, for example, in nightmares, there's often input from other things that have happened in our lives or the story of the trauma might be told in different ways. The emotional experience is the same, but the imagery might be quite different. And also what we find with post-traumatic stress disorder is sometimes people um, have images where they didn't necessarily directly experience something themselves, but perhaps have learned about it and have generated images of what that might have been like. So for example, learning that someone has died who was close to them, they might have imagined what that was like. And then those images, which we would sometimes call constructed images, can become intrusive in their own right. So imagery is really important in post-traumatic stress disorder, but actually a lot of evidence Um, Now we're showing that imagery is really important in other disorders, so for example, in social anxiety disorder, people are often plagued by images of their kind of worst fears, you know, they might, during um, a social encounter, have an image of how they might be coming across in their brain, which is a sort of, in their mind, which is a kind of worst case scenario, for example, that they are bright red or that they're sweating or that they look terribly nervous or that their face is distorted. And they might also get images from the past as well, so what we'd call kind of socially traumatic events, not quite the same as PTSD, but times in the past where something has gone bad, um, badly wrong socially, where they've been humiliated or bullied or something like that. These images might plague them when they're in social situations. And in other disorders as well, in phobias, people typically have images of kind of the worst version of the thing that they're afraid of that come to mind. Or fearful, what we would call flash forwards, which is kind of imagining something in the future. So like with a spider phobic, it might be a fear of like the spider being kind of caught up in their hair or under their clothes or something. Something which hasn't actually happened to them, but that they can imagine and that generates a kind of real fear. Apologies to any spiderphobics out there if I triggered you with that. Um, Obsessive compulsive disorder, people commonly get sort of um, images that fit with their felt sense. So for example, of contamination, they might almost um, feel as if they can sort of imagine their, their body crawling with germs or with dirt in some way. They might also get fearful images of, of things that they fear happening or things that they fear doing, like harming other people and so on. So images are important, you know, I've mentioned a few, but actually in probably the full range of psychological disorders. Across all of these different things that we work with clinically. And they might exist in different forms, you know, they might be memories, they might be flash forwards, they might be constructions, as I say, things that have been generated from our own imagination, but which are nonetheless um, very concerning or frightening. And there might be um, what I'm calling kind of defining self-images, which is where we develop an image of ourselves, which um, it sort of comes to really dominate the way that we view ourselves in some way. And that might be driven from negative experiences in the past. It might be from thoughts that we have about ourselves. And when we think about sort of what keeps psychological disorders going, it might be that those images and the beliefs that they're associated with have a very kind of close relationship and a bi-directional relationship. So for example, this would be a kind of body dysmorphic type belief feeling that you're very ugly, that you've got an enormous nose, for example, that other people think the same way. If you think that about yourself, you're likely to spontaneously generate images, for example, of the size of your nose. And of course, the more you have those kind of images, the more it's going to fuel that belief about yourself that this is true. It really sort of consolidates those self-beliefs. So images and beliefs probably have this kind of um, mutually maintaining relationship. And similarly, the way that we cope with images might form a big part of um, certain psychological disorders. So, typically, when images are, are negative or unpleasant or distressing, what we're going to try and do is get rid of them in some way. So, for example, this would be a, a typical kind of OCD type thought or, or, or image. If you have an image of of when a train is coming to a platform, you just get this image in your head of pushing someone in front of the train, or indeed jumping in front of the train yourself, which by the way is a really common image, a lot of people get that when they're standing on a train platform. But if the way that you cope with that thought coming into your mind is to start changing your behavior, thinking, okay, it's it's unsafe for me to go to train stations because I might actually act on this. So I'm going to avoid stations. I might ruminate the whole time on what this means about me as a person. And I might try to push that image away. And one thing we know about images is usually the more we try and push them out of our mind, actually the way uh, the more they can come back in. It's called the rebound effect. If you ever try really trying hard not to think about something, often it's the only thing that you can think about. So these types of behaviours will then maintain not, over the, not only the images, but also those beliefs that people have about, those, about themselves. And these kind of relationships, these types of vicious cycles, can form a big part of psychological disorders. What maintains the distress, and therefore they're an important target for therapy. So Sometimes in treatment what we try and do is transform um, negative and distressing images so this is what I'll, I'll kind of give you a few more um, few more ideas about and as I'll say at the end this might be something we can also try ourselves. So it's a technique that we commonly call um, imagery rescripting. It's not a new um, idea actually it's been around for Hundreds, if not thousands of years, is actually evidence that ancient Greeks did some imagery rescripting um, and dream transformation, things like that, when they were trying to um, treat uh, psychological and spiritual distress. And it's formed part of other therapies over the years, just out therapy, hypnotherapy, um, you know, injury scripting. And sort of, and, and Beck talked about it in the early days of cognitive therapy. But certainly in recent years, it's really kind of um, gathered a lot more attention in, in CBT. And we use it now quite frequently, not only in PTSD, but across treatment for lots of different disorders. And essentially what injury scripting is, is kind of, Rewriting an image, changing um, what happens in an image, whether that's a true memory or a constructed image. I'll give you some examples of that. So, when we work with trauma memories and post traumatic stress disorder, what we're usually trying to do is kind of pull out what might be the key memories that's maintaining a person's distress. So, we're looking for key memories or, or moments during a trauma which are re experienced that are coming back in these nightmares and flashbacks and so on. So I've got an example here of someone I work with who was sexually assaulted in um, childhood by their piano teacher. And what we do in cognitive therapy is we really try and understand what specifically is it about those moments or those memories that creates distress for that person? Because often there are important personal meanings attached that might be different for, for everybody. So for this person, the meanings that were attached to, to those moments were... Um, uh, a sense that they're in danger, associated with fear, and also a sense of um, that they'd made a mistake, that it was their fault, that sometimes caused this to happen, which was associated with powerful feelings of guilt. So when we're working with these types of memories in PTSD, we often try and update them with new information. So things that we know now that the person didn't know at the time. So for example, for this person, it's that they're safe now, no one's abusing them anymore, that their piano teacher no longer has any contact with them and can't harm them any further. And also, and this is something we might work with with a whole range of, of cognitive techniques, but that it wasn't their fault that they're only a child. They weren't even aware um, what sex was at that time and that the fault lay with the, the adult in that scenario with the perpetrator. So these are things that the adult knows but that the child doesn't know. So to bring that new information back into the trauma memory so that the child knows it and so that the trauma memories can be sort of um, updated with that new information, we reactivate the trauma memory by talking again about what happened. And then we bring that new information in and connect it back with the memory. So this is a kind of standard technique in, in cognitive therapy for PTSD that we call updating trauma memories. And when we use rescripting, We're often trying to um, essentially do the same thing, but bring that new information in via the image, via changing the image. So, for example, rather than just saying, um, I'm safe now and it wasn't my fault, we can change the, the story of the trauma memory to bring that new information in in a different way. And as we were saying earlier, because images can be um, more powerful than words alone, sometimes this can be a a kind of faster way to really connect and resonate with that new information, that new emotional information. So a typical rescript, for example, for a childhood trauma is to actually come into the trauma memory as the adult self. Um, Sometimes the therapist comes in too if, if the person will find that helpful. And then do the things that the the child in that scenario needs. So perhaps rescue them, take them to a place of safety, perhaps comfort them, perhaps tell them that it's not their fault, perhaps confront or punish the perpetrator if that's something that person wants to do. And all of this is really led by the client when we do this clinically. It's up to them what they want to do. We just kind of help them facilitate it and help them imagine it. So, essentially, what we're trying to do is still update with this, this information. The information is still the same. I'm safe now and it's not my fault. But we're using an imagery rescript to bring that in. So, a couple of um, uh, kind of other uh, emotional themes that are common in PTSD memories uh, are things like fear, shame, powerlessness, and disgust. And what we're trying to do with um, rescripting is to create an alternative emotional experience. So the re should try and counteract those negative emotions that are there in the trauma memory. So if someone is very fearful, we want to provide them with a sense of safety. If they felt very ashamed, we want them to be able to access beings of compassion. If they felt powerlessness, we want them to experience mastery. If they felt disgust, then we want them to feel decontaminated and clean. And this is true of kind of all of the different types of negative emotions. We want the rescript to kind of introduce a new emotional experience that counteracts that negativity. So a couple of other examples. This is from a client who um, was tortured and felt a very uh, strong sense of injustice and anger about the way that they had been treated, which was totally reasonable and understandable because what had happened was, was grossly unfair. And this person hadn't ever been able to get justice for it Um, in real life so what we tried to do in imagery rescripting was find a way for her to feel a sense of power and a sense of justice being served in an imagery so what she wanted to do was kind of revisit the scene of the trauma which was a a prison in iran as a kind of avenging jinn which is a kind of um, evil spirit and she destroyed the prison she freed the prisoners that were still being held there so she was able to kind of inflict um, some punishment on the perpetrators um, and experience a sense of kind of justice being served, even though that wasn't possible in real life. Another example, this is a kind of disgust, shame, um, memory after a sexual assault. This was someone who, had kind of spiritual beliefs. Some people in their scripts like to be kind of really creative and like sort of magical elements. Some people like kind of much more pragmatic, practical things that could actually happen in time and space. And that's fine, you know, we just go with whatever our clients want to do. But for this person, they wanted to go and clean themselves in a kind of magical waterfall. And then she had a guardian angel who visited her and reminded her that she had nothing to be ashamed of. So that provision of kind of being clean and being cared for and experiencing compassion um, were the kind of key elements of her rescript. script So they're different for everybody and, and there's a kind of whole range of really imaginative stuff that we can do to kind of transport, transform images. And by the way, we're not pretending... Um, with our clients that something terrible hasn't happened you know or that this really could have happened in real life what we're doing is just sort of changing the feeling associated with the memory to try and bring in these new meanings and these new emotions which can then disrupt the, um, the re-experiencing of the trauma memory which at the moment comes back again and again in its original horrible form so we're just trying to interrupt that process but we're not trying to pretend that, that what happened didn't happen or that it wasn't terrible. And maybe we can use this kind of techniques in other disorders as well. So, for example, with um, phobias, what if rather than imagining the kind of the terrifying spider, the worst case scenario spider, we imagine this cute uh, little guy, the misunderstood um, a spider. Um, I listened to a podcast recently where uh, there was a guy talking, about, it was a spider researcher and he researched these, wolf spiders who are the kind of common house spiders that you you sometimes see in um, British households which can be quite big and and certainly I used to be quite spider phobic and he was explaining that actually these spiders the ones you see around your house in autumn are usually kind of lonely males looking for a a mate and that they um, if you put you know we, we can't hear it with the human ear but if you put a tiny microphone to them they're singing this sort of sweet little song to kind of attract mates and even doing a little dance with their front legs and it totally transformed the way i thought about these house spiders you know rather than thinking of as sort of kind of frightening things that were dashing at me um i sort of could see them as as just kind of slightly hapless lonely bachelors looking for a a mate or maybe um like in harry potter where um ron weasley was was transforming his, his his feared um demon boggart um, I think they were called, um, he put it on roller skates, so he made something that was frightening into something that was kind of ridiculous. So maybe we can transform things that we're, we're afraid of in our minds to take a lot of the fear away. Similarly with social anxiety, you know, when we're um, fearful about a social encounter, like a first day at a new job or doing a presentation or something like that, instead of imagining it going wrong, maybe what we do is kind of imagine it going really well and, you know, use that kind of power of visualization and and positive imagery, which as we know will have an impact both on our physiology and on our behavior. So um, I'd encourage you to, to try these kind of techniques yourself, you know, either with kind of memories from the past if you have those which bother you Um, if you've got sort of self-defining negative images maybe have a think about as i've talked about with rescripting you know what are the meaning of those images to you how do they make you feel and what what might be a, a kind of different emotional experience what might be a way for that scenario to end differently in your mind that would bring in a sort of counteracting uh, emotion? Um, And could you transform those memories or those images that you have to bring in those new endings and to give yourself a different emotional experience? If there's something that you're frightened of or if there's something that you kind of have flash forwards about, what if this happened in the future? What if that happened? Could you try rewriting the story of how those things end so that they end in a different, more positive way? We can't predict the future and we can't change the past. But what we can do is is change our appraisals of those things and our emotional reaction to those things and one of the sort of avenues towards accessing those new emotions can be through imagery okay so i'm going to finish there uh, feel free to um, email me or contact me on twitter if you've got any questions about any of this stuff or if you want me to share any resources any of the papers that i've mentioned so I'll stop sharing, and then I think we have some
0: time for questions. Wonderful, thank you ever so much, Hannah. Um, we've had some questions that have come in on the chat already, as well as our pre-prepared ones. So I'll start with one of the questions in the chat. Um, you, you were talking a lot about what you do as therapists, but obviously as, um, as you came to the end, you were talking about things that people think people might be able to do on them, by themselves. Um, and one of the questions was, would you advise that someone seeks help to process a childhood trauma or, or um, could they try to deal with it themselves?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's hard to say without getting kind of more information, I guess, about how that trauma affects the individual. Because of course, you know, many people have childhood traumatic experiences that can affect them in lots of different ways as an adult. But certainly if, if there are memories from that, which are bothering you, causing a lot of distress, especially if they're coming back repetitively in in kind of negative images, nightmares, flashbacks, those kind of things. I absolutely say to, to seek help. And, you know, I, I'm a PTSD person, so I've got always PTSD on the mind. But actually, trauma can be a real trigger for all sorts of different emotional, psychological problems as an adult. So if there's something that, that's kind of causing you kind of significant impact in your day to day life, then definitely I would say seek help. But I guess the things we can do for ourselves, perhaps are things where, you know, we have images that, that aren't causing us day to day problem with our functioning, but perhaps just kind of haunt us a little bit. Or like I say, define a little bit about our, ourselves that we don't like, you know, or that give us the sort of the wrong messages in some ways that we can use these techniques to manage.
0: Great. Thanks very much. Um, and I suppose they're talking, you know, very much talking about images from previous experiences. We did have a question that was submitted in advance um, asking about does the approach to mental images differ for real images versus imagined images? Um, mm. And also in the, the question I highlighted that maybe sometimes you don't know whether this is a real image or something that I've imagined.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's true. And I, I, it's a really interesting question because you know, when you, when you think about memories, you know, our, our memories aren't exact replays of what has happened in the past. You know, they're reconstructed every time we, we remember something. And that reconstruction is influenced by other sources, you know, things that have happened since and things that are happening to us now similarly you know our imagination is really fueled by our memories so when I asked you that exercise about imagining walking into your house and so on you you were drawing on memories of going into your house to create those images so and I'm, I'm going to misquote this and I can't remember exactly who said it but there's a quote which is something along the lines of you know all memories are imaginings and all imaginings are, are, are memories so those mental processes are really closely interlinked and certainly the way that we work with them you know things like imagery scripting you can use with real memories you can use with constructed memories where we, we or constructed images that we know aren't memories and certainly you can use it when you, you don't know and certainly from um especially memories that come from our early childhood often we, we're not clear what exactly is a true memory and what's not and there's lots of evidence to show that that some of our childhood memories might be accurate some actually might not be accurate and might be the product of imagination And that it's really hard to tell the difference, you know, and again, the same things kind of happen in our brain when we kind of access memories of things that really did happen versus things that we've imagined happening. Um, There was a nice study actually with people who believed that they'd been abducted by aliens. So a sort of highly improbable memory, but those people um, fully believed it to be true. And when they sort of analysed the, quality and quantity of those memories and the kind of physiological reactions associated with them, they were almost identical to memories that could be verified. So yeah, it's a nice question because actually there's clearly a huge overlap between sort of constructed images and memories and and we can address them in very similar ways.
0: Thanks very much. Um, You you talked about obviously the, the critical a critical part being the connection between the emotion um, and the image. And we had a specific question about shame. Um, and I wondered if you um, were able to comment on shame specifically. And for example, where people are, are, are thinking back to their past mistakes and feeling that sense of shame and how people might be able to um, make peace with those sorts of uh, memories and images.
1: Yeah. It's a real, it's a horrible emotion shame, isn't it? And yeah, um... You know, it's often a big part of the work that we do in PTSD. And, but for all of us, you know, I can access memories of things that I'm ashamed of in the past, and they still give me a real kind of, like, shiver um, now. I, I think, um, you know, as I talked about before, sort of trying to find a counterpoint to the emotions. So often with shame, that's kind of compassion. And, you know, when we, if you imagine talking to someone <clears throat> who cares a lot about you, what they would say when you told them about something that you feel very ashamed of, you know, often they would be um, much less critical of you than you are of yourself. So we could kind of use imagery to embody that more compassionate perspective. Um, Deborah Lee has this really nice technique that that's called the perfect nurturer, and um, it's kind of it was designed for people who have very high levels of shame, high, high self-criticism who really struggled with that process of being compassionate towards themselves so it's a kind of way of like outsourcing the compassion to um, an imagined being that you can then seek kind of advice and comfort for so what she advises doing is imagining what the qualities of a kind of idealized caregiver would be this perfect nurturer so they might be someone who you know um, looks like your grandmother who you loved very much who smells like a a comforting smell to you um, who's got a voice that's really kind of um, soft and gentle and comforting and caring and you sort of imagine this kind of being so it could be a spiritual elements as well or it could be kind of more in the form of a, a real human and then imagine kind of sharing that experience with them or imagine them entering the memory of the thing that you feel ashamed of and what they would do and what they would say to you and probably they would want to comfort you maybe they'd want to hug you you know and imagine being on kind of the receiving end of that compassion because I think sometimes when we can't generate those self-compassion kind of um, experiences for ourselves and connect with those emotions if we can sort of externalize it in a way and then imagine being on the receiving end of it that can help and i think also if we imagine giving compassion and care to someone else so if you imagine for example a child crying and how you might comfort them and how you might care for them what the tone of your voice might be how what you would say how you would act um we can often generate that externally and then we have to kind of practice being able to turn it in on ourselves so yeah i'll give that a try if you've got kind of shame and memories that
0: want you thank you i think that relates really nicely actually to one of the questions in the chat which is about um compassion and sympathy and and i think just to, i think if i'm understanding it correctly the question is really about yeah that where people are struggling to access compassion and sympathy from others uh is it going to be difficult for them to engage in you know uh altering their their images um until they've got that that compassion and sympathy sympathy from others and I guess um until you feel understood by others it may yeah. be difficult to engage in actually making it making a change um, apologies if I haven't, haven't quite um understood the, the the question properly but I think it's really about you know how, how can people deal with with that, pro- that problem and be able to access the, the sympathy and compassion that they yeah. might need and is that important as a first yeah. aid
1: I think it is important and and I think it is a challenge and I think you know especially you know many of the people we work with with PTSD especially if they've had sort of many traumatic experiences and especially people who've got kind of traumas that started in their very early childhood you know feeling compassion for yourself is just not not a muscle that you have developed emotion that you see it to me so it can be really hard when you know in therapy we're asking them to try and develop that that side or to see their experiences in a different way you know then they might just not have access to that that counterpoint perspective um so that's where these kind of imagery exercises can, can be useful and can be a way of just sort of practicing it you know it might not be something that happens quickly it might be something that that needs a bit of time i think the other thing i'd say is you know Rescripting these techniques they usually sit within a kind of whole course of treatment so I've just sort of isolated this technique and talked about it but it's not the only way that we would work on these types of um, experiences or um, these types of emotions in, in therapy it's just kind of one one way of doing it and it actually doesn't suit everybody you know as I said earlier some people generate uh, imagery really readily and really naturally and they take the imagery and rescripting very quickly and find it a very powerful technique but i've certainly worked with some people where it's it's just not quite been their cup of tea and they found it harder to generate images and actually they prefer working in a kind of more verbal cognitive domain and that's okay too you know but i i think people i've worked with have often been surprised you know sometimes when you introduce a technique like scripting, people are a little bit skeptical of it um but actually when they try it they sometimes are surprised by the power of the kind of imagery they can generate and the emotions associated with that
0: and that actually picks up on a couple of questions in the chat, which are sort of about, you know, how do you help people image image better for yeah. one way of saying it. And um, and, and I so I guess that it sounds like you're saying that to some extent some people are, you know, just have richer imagery than others. Mm. Um, however, there might be some people who maybe um, if they sort of allow themselves to go with it, actually are able to engage in it better than they might might be able to expect. It sounds like you're saying you wouldn't kind of that if people are not experiencing images, you wouldn't want to be pushing that necessarily. You kind of work with what works best for individuals. But do you want to say, are, are there mm. things that you think help people to, you know, create richer images and be able to use imagery more effectively?
1: Yeah, I, I do think it's something you can practice, you know, and um, sometimes what we would do is kind of help people practice um. Imagery, which is kind of benign imagery before we start working on more traumatic memories. So, you know, the, the kind of imagery exercise, you know, the one I, I did with you earlier with the, the lemon, but you can ask people to imagine sort of things like um, their route home after work and what all of that looks like. And, and, um, and people can often generate quite powerful image. And then often what we do is sort of give them practice in manipulating images because that, that's often new to people. You know, even if you're someone who generates imagery quite readily, you might not have ever tried to transform or rescript your, your images. So we sometimes get people, for example, to imagine like a kettle boiling. And that's a good one because it's nice and multi-sensory, you know, the sounds and, um, um, and visual stuff. And so you kind of imagine it boiling, what that would look like and the steam coming out of the kettle and then get them to imagine, OK, now the steam is going back into the kettle and now I want you to change the image into black and white rather than into colour or now I want you to um, you know instead of um, steam coming out of the kettle I want you to imagine that little ping pong balls are, are flying out of the kettle or whatever it might be but getting people sort of just to start playing in their imagination with, with modifying images and actually there's, there's interesting evidence that with kind of trauma memories or unpleasant images even just doing those kind of just like changing the details of the image even if you're not kind of bringing in a new emotional experience can reduce the power of the the memory or the unpleasant image in itself so it's almost like once we know we've got a bit of control over images and once we can see that they are like a, a product of our mind's eye rather than something which has this kind of power over us which often it can feel like it does once we realize we can manipulate and change them Um, and we've got some sort of self-efficacy then in that relationship with our images, that in itself can reduce distress. So, yeah, it can be a powerful technique, but but certainly those kind of things can help people just sort of, yeah, build up the the skill of of accessing and manipulating images. But, yeah, as you say, Kathy, it it, it might not be for everyone. And and personally, I wouldn't kind of, you know, push it and push it if someone's just not finding it a helpful technique, then we can move on to other techniques.
0: Thanks. I'm afraid we're not going to be able to get through all of the the questions that have come in. Um, but just one more question for you, Hannah. We've talked quite a lot about um, images images from you know past experiences. Would, would do you tend to work in different ways if you're helping people? combat stressful mental images of the future um, and so there was a comment specifically about for example if someone's currently facing uncertainty in aspects of the life of their life uh, and may be experiencing stressful mental images that are future focused yeah. um how would you approach those would yeah. it be the same or are there any things that would be different i yeah you know, i mean i guess
1: i've talked a lot about images from the past because that's obviously what what i work with but certainly people do have images you know fearful images of the future you know and as we talked about earlier this kind of link between our our beliefs or our thoughts and our images is is really close so if we're really worried about something happening in the future we're likely to generate images which are associated with those beliefs you know if we think something bad's going to happen then we might start imagining that but but the trouble is then a those negative images are going to sort of stimulate lots of negative emotions and be they're going to kind of reinforce those beliefs. It's going to make it even more feel even more likely that, that those bad things are going to happen. So I guess if we notice that process happening in ourselves, you know, that it's really kind of fueling our worry when we generate these images, um, perhaps we can do things to try and kind of um, interfere with that process or, or break that link. So perhaps, as I say, you know, um, imagining different scenarios that might go better you know more positive flash forwards we can't influence necessarily with the outcome but worrying and generating a lot of negative imagery um, isn't necessarily helpful so i think once people kind of recognize that that link and they can try and um, uh, generate alternative ways of thinking about the future and alternative ways of imagining it that that might perhaps um, influence that
0: Great. Thank you ever so much, Hannah. And I'm very sorry to everyone who's put questions in the chat that we haven't been able to reach. Um, but hopefully, um, you've been able to get some useful input on some of the things you were asking about through the responses Hannah's given. But um, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Um, Hannah, it's been really wonderful to have your talk um, and to add this to the series. Um, just a reminder to those who've joined about the series. So um, it's all available on the Department of Experimental Psychology YouTube channel, which you can search for directly or look at via our website and, um, Hallie has just posted more information on that in the chat. Before you completely leave today, we'd be really grateful if you could complete the feedback form that will pop up. Um, it will be really useful to have that for us to be thinking just about future things that we may do beyond this series. Um, and I'd also just as we're coming to the end of this series, like to say a huge thank you to Hallie Cohen and to Kaya Winnie who have done uh, all the work behind the scenes to make sure this series has run really smoothly and has helped us uh, reach a really large number of people with this sort of evidence-based guidance on all things mental health and mental wellness so massive thank you to Hallie and to Kaya for all of their support and huge thanks to all of our speakers across the series um as you know as I've said a few times please do go and visit some of the other talks because there are some really you know they're they're, they're a really wonderful collection which we hope will be really useful for you so thanks ever so much to you all for joining us um and we look forward to Seeing you again in some other form in the future. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.